This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. So I, I asked more about the light light part, then about the block where you go hard. How many times per per week you do the strength training? I think the classic kind of in the strength training literature is that you do five trainings per week at least, and the maintenance would be two times per week, kind of rough rule of thumb. How how much is it for for your athletes? I w- I would say five challenging sessions every twenty one days. Okay. So it's it's enough to if what you'll find with an endurance athlete is if they truly go hard, it's a very different type of fatigue for them. There's a, there's a it's it's neuromuscular. There, it's a, it's it's not it's not an endurance fatigue. So it hits them very hard when they do it. And even when the soreness is gone, they might still be tired and not be and not realize it. It's a bit it's almost almost a bit like sprinting. The the sprint fatigue is going to be a different type of fatigue. So in order for the athlete to get the most when when they are really challenging themselves, in order to get the most out of that, you really want that athlete fresh so that they can they can really focus on it and do the work and then mentally they they get to absorb the work and recover. And I've found if you do if you do more than five of those in a three week period with an endurance athlete, they're gonna go flat on you. Or what's gonna happen is they're gonna self-regulate. In other words, they're not gonna really go hard. So there, it's gonna be like, you know what? I, I gotta do this again on Thursday. Maybe I'm not gonna go really heavy today. And so I would rather that we do less sessions, but really hit those sessions hard than do a whole bunch of work, but the work is 85 to 90% as opposed to trying to get some really big um, numbers up for that athlete. And then uh, key point for the aging athlete, I mentioned the leg press sled. All your strength gains go away if you hurt yourself. So if you don't have a lifetime uh, background of doing squatting, back squats and front squats and deadlift and good technique, you need to be very careful with the amount of weight that you're going to be putting on your spine. And that's why I like the leg press sled for when someone wants to go very heavy. It's um. It's it's relatively uh, it's much safer than having a ton of weight running down your spine, and that's where I I put most of my athletes when it's time for them to go very heavy. And then the other thing I found after fifty is although my legs are still strong enough to do heavy weights with the back squat, I get joint pain uh, if I start going really heavy with my back squats, and I don't want. I, I mean, I don't want to be in pain. So I need a change instead of, so instead of going towards the maximum weight, I have to start adding more reps and more sets. And I have to change the focus from driving my one rep max up towards driving my total work set kilos upwards. And so that's a shift that's, I, I didn't really, when I was 48, I could still put a lot of weight on my back. But as I got past 50, uh, the joint pain started to come in. And this seems to be 
um, relatively widespread. So you're going to need to change the way you strength train after 50, most likely. And if you do notice the joint pain, you don't have to deal with it. You just have to change your approach. Still keep doing the work, but don't don't load yourself quite as heavily. Mm. And I, I think the new literature shows that you can gain muscle mass even with the higher reps if you just go to go to like go hard enough go to failure earlier it was believed that you need to go maybe between six and 12 repetitions but now it seems that you can you can do more and about muscle mass with this this method you described for example the hard block do you see it more as not to lose muscle mass or do you actually gain have you measured the body body composition that do you actually gain muscle mass so I, you know, the easiest way would have been to do a DEXA before and after the pandemic. I did not. So it's, 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 I would say what you're really, what are we looking to achieve? We're looking to hold muscle mass. That's, that's really what we're, what we're doing. And in order to do that, I think the endurance athletes that are listening, you have to make sure that you're energy positive. And that's difficult for people. And what I mean by that is you're going to be gaining weight. But it's okay to be gaining some fat when you want to be in an anabolic cycle. Uh, you, you know, if you're if you're staying, if you're trying to stay particularly lean in this strength phase, you're selling yourself short. You want to give the body plenty of energy so it can adapt to the stress that you're putting on it. And I would argue it goes further too. I would say it's the same when you're focused on your endurance training, your base training. Most of your year, you need to be sure that you're fueling ap- appropriately so that you, you can recover. Because recovery is a big limiter for the over 40 athlete. And if you're going to challenge your recovery by having these chronic energy deficits because you're always trying to get lean, you're going to be holding yourself back uh, from your gains. And it's a it's a it's a big thing in our our demographic. Yeah. And how do you see like you said that it's all right the fat mass to go up when you when you're doing this strength block? Do you see that also for other reasons, maybe for hormonal function, you should have higher fat fat mass certain parts of the year. How long you would recommend it? What do you consider as too low for men and women and, and so on? Okay, so that is a great uh, topic. Um, it's there's a lot of well, let's talk a bit about let's talk a bit about the the limit. Each athlete will have a limit and and what I mean by the limit is it's a limit for the amount of stress that they can handle in their life. And I'm and and let's des- let's describe stress as all forms of life stress. So, an energy deficit and being lean is a form of stress. So to the extent that we are trying to be very lean for our frame, so we, there's different frame sizes of athletes. If we are trying to be very lean, we are creating a non-specific form of stress. So there are benefits to being lean, particularly in weight-bearing sports, going uphill running. Um, but there's also a stress associated with that. Now that stress is going to limit other forms of stress that we tolerate. Now I would argue that training stress is the most useful stress for an athlete. So you need to trade off. So there's there's a there's a point at which we're going to be too lean and it's going to be costing us 
training stress. We're going to have to train less because we're not going to be able to recover. Now, how are we going to know that we're too light? Well, there's the classic, we're going to get, our sleep is going to get disrupted. We're going to start getting sugar cravings. Our skin is going to heal slowly. And that's a sign that our body is healing slowly. We're not adapting to our training. We're going to recover more slowly. And so we'll, we'll see all these stress responses. And if a coach or an athlete is noticing these stress responses and they're lean, they should gain a kilo. Just gain a kilo. You're probably depleted. And that kilo that you're gaining, you, you're not really, you're really just making sure you're not depleted and you're recovering better. Uh, you will recover better. And I think most athletes will find that they have something called their strongest training weight. So if you pay attention, you will see that there is a, a weight where you recover fastest. And it's not necessarily, well, it's definitely not your race weight, say, particularly for a runner, but you're gonna have this strongest training weight. And that's where you wanna be most of the year. And by most of the year, I mean 11 months of the year. And then occasionally, if you're an elite athlete, you may, when you're coming into competition, depending on the type of competition, you may experiment with getting a touch lighter. But now we are talking about very marginal uh, gains with associated with greatly increasing risks for tipping yourself over the edge into illness and giving away all this hard training that you've done. Now, for the population that I work with, amateurs, it's not worth it. I would I, I advise those athletes, get to that strongest training weight and just stay there, have great training, great preparation, and just focus on the quality of your body, not necessarily the amount of your body. Because at, at a strongest training weight, your performance is gonna be the best, your, your recovery is gonna be the best, you'll be sleeping well, you won't be dealing with cravings and hunger and all these different things that happen when you're a little too light. And I think that's a better place for athletes to be. Yeah, it, it, it really makes sense. And I, I like that you mentioned that it's a total stress that you experience. And maybe from the COVID time, I've been working from home and, and you kind of can arrange everything and there was no events or anything. After that, I noticed that I can I can notice the stress of even taking a bus when you need to go to take a short part, bus ride because you know I I was in a in a summer cottage that I only hear birds singing and and no no traffic noise and and like perfect like and I I think I got the sensitivity that I really easily know the stress like what whatever small is is and I think most people don't understand like they think that stress is like when you are busy at work but it's all the small things that you you have how how do you how do you see the stress as kind of limiting factor in in training and and performance so in some ways stress is the limiting factor in that i think for most of us the loading the training is the easy part those that's the easy decision we like our training and we think the training is what makes us better. Now, the stress is everything outside of training. And it, it's all the other hours of the day. And how do we organize that? And I think it is very important. And dealing with the stress is really about cho making choices and removing habits. And, I, and when we study the elite athletes, and I mean the very best elite athletes, what do we see? We see they have simple lives and simple routines that are built around doing 
they're training. But when they're not training, the life is very simple. It's low stress. They're not having to make a lot of decisions. They're not having to go around and do a lot of things. Now, for, for most of us, that's not practical. I mean, I've got three kids and I can't tell the kids I need two days off because I'm a little tired from my training. I, I, I mean, it's just not practical. But there's a lot of things I can do in terms of how, you know, what time do I go to sleep at night? You know, I go to sleep at the same time my kids go to sleep. Simple decision. And and I don't, and, and by doing that, I make sleep a priority for myself and I put myself on the same schedule as my family. Now I need a little bit less sleep than the kids. So now I have the ability to train every morning. So, and so I do that. So, so those are two simple changes. You mentioned the bus. That comes into something which I think is a very important choice for working athletes. Where am I going to live? Am I going to have to commute uh, to work? How am I going to commute? Because a a bus is much better than driving. Uh, Americans love to drive everywhere, but that is dead time. And it's, it's worse than dead time because if you're the driver, you have to concentrate. So you're actually making yourself tired in a way that doesn't help any aspect of your life. It doesn't help your work. You know, you're better off on the bus on work. At least you can like get ahead on your email or, or read something to do with your, your job. And you're and you're not you're not exercising, you're just sitting in a chair and you're probably getting stressed out because there's traffic around and stuff. So I've always been willing to pay a premium to live close. And close can mean close to the office, but it could also mean to live close to the swimming pool, just so I can walk to the pool and get my swim training in. Or it could mean here in Boulder, I live close to running trails and there's a, there's a famous climb that I can start from my garage and I can start climbing uphill straight out of my house. I don't need to go anywhere to do my ride. So I think the choice we make about where we live is a very important choice for all athletes, working athletes, elite athletes, because it goes to the efficiency of our day and it lets us get rid of driving and other things. Um, those would be the, those would be a few of the key things to do with stress. And then ultimately, we need to make choices. We need to decide what's important to us. I think athletes, high performing athletes, are not necessarily high performing in the rest of their life. And what I mean by that is they've made a choice that athletics is going to be a focus for them. And then other aspects of their life are maintenance. I mean, they're on a maintenance level, and you need to watch that because. It's possible to be a world champion and end up completely alone. So that might not be your your goal. So it's for most of us, that elite career is a period of our life. It's not our entire life. It's just it's going to be a decade of our lives or or depending on however. And then we're going to go, we're going to go on to the next phase of our life. I would also say you can phase your year. And that's part of earlier I was talking about with the older athletes, how we were going to choose these blocks. Because it's too difficult to take a husband or a wife and say, well, we're going to train you like a professional athlete for nine months of the year. That's not going to work. What we can do is we're going to have very strong maintenance across the year. And then we're going to have six blocks. And each block is going to be two or three weeks long. And we're going to really focus. And then you're going to go back to your normal life. Or with some athletes, they're like, I don't even have those kind of blocks. What you need to do for me is it's maintenance and a few long weekends. And you can get a lot of performance providing you're clear about what you're going to achieve and when you're going to achieve it. Yeah, I I, I really like it. it. It makes sense. And I couldn't agree more about living close. I have I have always prioritized that I want to live 
as close as where where the things happen because I I don't I don't see any any sense like commuting or or traveling to different places on a daily daily basis. Uh, maybe if we still discuss a little bit of heart rate variability, I think you have been using heart rate variability for the measurement of recovery and and readiness for training. Could you tell a little bit more? So it's interesting. What I found with the heart rate variability is it's it's variable, and and it's and it's variable within narrow time frames. So I you know I was curious about it, and I so I took my morning reading. Sometimes I do a two minute reading, and sometimes I'll take that reading three times just to see what's happening, and then in the evening. I will do a five to ten minute reading, and on that reading, I can see how my variability is changing across that period. So I'm capturing the variability within the heart rate, but I'm also capturing the heart rate itself, the average number across the period. And what I've found is that the the heart rate, the the number of beats per minute, is much more stable than looking at the variability itself. So there, there's more variation in the variability. Now, the variability has been most useful if I'm about to get sick. It shows very clearly before I can feel anything if I've been exposed to a virus or if I'm run down. So that is a very useful signal for me to pick up. I've managed to avoid getting sick a few times in the last year, two times in particular. Um, and it was it was a very helpful signal because I didn't load it was it was all of a sudden it, it dropped a lot and I was like wow this is really strange I'm just not going to load today and I rested and I didn't get sick I think in the olden days we I would have my schedule and I'd be like well schedule says four hour ride I, I mean you know what I'm just going to go and and then I would have gotten sick and it would have cost me training so that that is a useful thing the other thing is I can see trends over time. And this is trends in heart rate as well as trends in variability. And as I'm getting run down, my variability will trend down. And if I have an unloading block, I will notice that my resting heart rate will be trending down as I'm unloading, as I'm as I'm freshening. So the trends are also useful to me. Now here's a wrinkle, the chronic fatigue. And by chronic fatigue, I mean this baseline fatigue. It's not the day-to-day fatigue. It's almost like the week-to-week or the month-to-month fatigue. It can come in very slowly, so slowly that my heart rate variability metrics don't see it because the the, the variability the pro, I use HRV for training to track my data, and it has a it has I think is a like a six week window and then a one week window. Now when I'm getting when I'm getting tired across a season, so this would be across three or four weeks, my even my long term range is going to be changing very slowly, and so I might be getting run down. So it's important I've I think it's important to get an idea of what the fresh baseline, the healthy baseline is a couple times a year. Most of us will have a transition period after our competitive season. Um, I just did a transition period at the end of February. So I, I, I did an unload for 14 days just to see what is my healthy baseline. I was starting to feel a bit starting to feel a bit stale. I wasn't enjoying my training as much. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to unload for 14 days before the spring and have a look. So that's something I would be aware of. The acute variations, I, I would not necessarily be making big decisions 
off of what's happening day to day and moment to moment. I would be looking at the trends over time. And then I would be very cautious with any big moves. And by big moves, I mean the heart rate variability increases greatly all of a sudden one morning or it goes down all of a sudden one morning. Uh, that would be, I'd be like, okay, this could be a caution sign. And I would just, I would be willing to give away a day of loading so that I didn't necessarily make myself sick or didn't increase the magnitude of the sickness. That's where it's been helpful, uh, most helpful for me. And so, and so I'm, so when I capture my heart rate, data. I also capture the variability data. So, I've, you know, it's easy for me just to pull everything in, but that's how I've been finding it uh, useful. And then I also pull in the other metrics. I would say, you know, one of the best metrics that we have available to us is, is a really simple one, which is just how fast do we fall asleep? If all of a sudden our ability to fall asleep is impaired, that can be a signal. So that that's like a, an early warning signal for me with fatigue is when my sleep starts to be disrupted. And, it's, and, and I'm still sleeping, but all of a sudden I'm just lying in bed for an hour and a half, not sleeping at the beginning of the night. And then I fall asleep my next day and my training's fine. But it's a sign that maybe I'm a little overstimulated. I'm not able to relax uh, in the evening. And maybe I need to be thinking about if I'm in a block where my training load is high, maybe my train, maybe maybe my sleep is trying to tell me my my training load is a little too high for for where I am right now. So the the simple metrics, um, once you get an understanding of them, can be quite. Um, I call it the natural signals. So the the sleep and and the feeling, my mood. If my children start bothering me a lot, that's a really good indicator for me. I lose my patience. And again, it all comes to this, what's happening in the body, the stimulation. I'm a little overstimulated in my head. So the sleep is trouble. My patience isn't as good. So this is where it comes out. And then the final one I would say to people is cravings, the sugar cravings. I find, you know, if, if all of a sudden I'm, my, my nutrition, I'm getting these strange cravings. There's information there. There's too much stress somewhere in my life and I should probably just back it down. Or maybe I'm depleted. I'm, I'm not fueling appropriately and I need to just eat a bit more. Yeah, very good points. And and you said that you take morning morning reading and evening reading. Uh, do you do you do it like the other option would be to measure the whole whole night heart rate variability? But that might be a little bit more challenging. Do you have a reason why you don't go full night and just the morning and evening? So actually, well, I, I, I got an aura ring. So I, I, I do, the, the ring has a look at the full night. But the full night, at, well, let, let's, I'll, I'll share something else I've noticed too. So the full night is useful. I, I like being able to look at the data. And what am I looking for? Again, I'm, I'm looking at my heart rate, not my variability across the night. I want to see, what I'll see when I'm recovering well is my heart rate falls across the night. The other thing I've noticed with taking the evening reading though, is if my evening heart rate is significantly elevated, so I have a normal range in the evening. If my evening heart rate is significantly elevated, I need to be careful with loading the next day. The next day should either be an e easy day or a maintenance day. What and this is I, I I my hunch is this is a over 45 issue because when I was younger I could just train the next day and I I'd be fine. I'd be I'd be able to absorb that as long as I had some recovery at some point in the week. But as an older athlete, I need to be much care more careful with where I put those loading days. So I will if I load when my heart rate was elevated in the evening it's almost like I'm creating a, a debt, a fatigue debt 
that I'm going to have to repay. And I usually, and it's, and it's strange, I can get through the week, but the week after is usually a lousy week. And so what I found is it's better for me just to put a maintenance day in and then the day after I can get back to loading and I'll and I'll have a good uh, I'll have a good day. So I'm using the evening heart rate just to see how much of the day took out of me. So that overnight reading and it's overnight heart rate, it's not overnight heart rate variability, it will be useful. If my heart rate stays high across most of the night, it's a sign that I was actually quite tired when I went to sleep and I should probably be careful. So I do look at that, but I think most athletes, I don't think they need to be looking at the the full night reading because a reading before bed will get you that information. Um, if you're elevated before bed, you're, you're going to be, I mean, because you know, you'll have your before bed and you're going to have your morning. You will have, ideally, you will have come down. If you haven't come down, then you're definitely too tired. If you're elevated in the evening and in the morning, you're going to be a little too tired. You doubt you probably want to have a very easy day that day. Yeah. And and you mentioned about mood and falling asleep time. I, I fully agree from personal point of view on those. How, how do you see the, like, if you have a hard, long training, how do you see the mood, the next day mood as an indicator if it was too too hard, basically, one, one of the or too hard the training day previous do you do you see any 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 point there kind of caging the the mood next day well so well there's 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 the mood but i haven't been able to i haven't been able to figure out what I just noticed the mood. I haven't been able to figure the cause of the mood in a sense. It's just like, because I think fatigue is more than just what happened in the previous workout. I think it's everything. It's the whole life fatigue. And and again, I'm finding more as I get older, the fatigue that I'm having this week usually has something to do with what happened the week before too. So I wouldn't make it, I wouldn't make it acute. In other words, I wouldn't make it day to day. I would say the mood has got to do with chronic. It's got to do with the overall stress, the overall load. But here is uh, something that we haven't touched on, which I think is a very important thing for athletes to monitor. It's the normal range of heart rate in training. So during training. So in in each session and in each intensity zone that the athlete is seeking to target, there will be a normal heart rate response. And knowing that normal response, I think, is very valuable because if you get a suppressed response, particularly at the lower end of your aerobic range, and if you were doing higher intensity training, if it's suppressed at the top end, it's another clear signal. You're probably you're probably a little too tired, or it's a combination of being too tired and also depleted. So that is something I watch very carefully. And I actually do a test most mornings where it's my warm-up, and I look at my heart rate response on the bike in the warm-up, and I see, is my heart rate coming up? And when I'm tired, uh, my coach calls it, it's like a heart rate handbrake. It's like the body is pushing the heart rate down. It won't let the heart rate come up. And these are very low heart rates. So, you know, the heart rate response is going to be 100 to 115 beats per minute normally. And if I'm tired, it's just going to stay at 100, 105. And it's and I'm able to see at a very low level, low intensity level, hmm, something's wrong. Now, Sometimes it might just be a cold room. Uh, it might just be I need a longer warm up. And in that case, I just do a longer warm up. The heart rate comes up normally and I'm going to train normally. It's not a problem. So it's, it's not the answer. It's just a little bit 
of information. But if my heart rate doesn't come up, then it's just going to be an easy day. And I'm going to and I'm going to eat a little bit more, get, get some more food in my diet because sometimes it can be, mean that I was depleted. So your prior question about if I had a big day. So if I had a big day prior and I have heart rate suppression after that big day, it, it may mean that I did not fuel appropriately in the big day and after the big day. And so if I'm going to make a mistake on my big days, I'm going to eat a little bit too much because I don't want to carry depletion into the rest of my week because I know it's going to impair my ability to recover and it'll impair my ability to absorb this training that I'm doing. Really good points. We are we are running up to our time so i will i will wrap up but i really enjoyed the discussion i think i come from the science background more and and i think basically everything you said it it makes sense from the scientific point of view i and i i fully agree basically with with every point so this was this was really interesting discussion so thank you thank you for your insights cordo thanks i enjoyed it Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.